0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Catherine Fulton, hosted by Michael Lerner, titled Angles of Vision, Strategies for a New Time. Welcome, Catherine Fulton.
1: Thank you, Michael.
2: I've
1: listened to a lot of new school broadcasts, but... Never done this. I wish we were sitting there together in that beautiful commonweal.
2: I wish so too. So let's all start with uh, a few moments of silence together. Just uh, letting go of all the busyness in our lives and just going into the quiet as a way to start. peace, peace. So Catherine, um, I would love to introduce you briefly, and then ask you to give us a little reading. Um, I think many, many of those who are joining us know you already. But Catherine Fulton is um, a member of the Commonwealth Board of Directors, full disclosure. And we've known each other for, we were just figuring it out before the call, about 20 years now. And um, Catherine has been a leading strategic advisor to foundations, high net worth donors, and major nonprofits for the past 25 years. She spent a decade building the Monitor Institute into one of the nation's leading social sector consulting firms. And she has published and spoken widely on the future of philanthropy, on impact investing and social change. Before that, Catherine was a journalist co-founding an award-winning alternative newspaper in the American South. Her conviction in the early 1990s that the Internet would transform journalism led her to California where she worked with the world's leading futurists and scenario planners as a senior leader at Global Business Network. And you know, Catherine, I think we may well have met at Global Business Network too. Yeah, I
1: think we did.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I remember going to some of those meetings. Catherine has served on more than two dozen boards, including, as I mentioned, Commonweal. And she's now the co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, Which we should talk more about. That's Stuart Brand's uh, incredible uh, creation. And Catherine lives in Sonoma, California, with her wife of 30 years, the artist uh, and extraordinary being, Catherine Kunst. So, Catherine, I'm so honored and grateful to be here with you this morning. It means a lot to me personally.
1: And me, Michael, you know, I'm, I've, been your, I've been your super fan on the New School for, for about 13 years. I used to always go walking and listen. And I remember for some reason, your conversation that you did with someone about Emerson is one that really sticks in my head. I remember mm-hmm. walking around some big city listening to that. But um, So you've, you've accompanied me on my journey.
2: How many of the New School conversations do you think you've listened to?
1: Well, you know these conversations that you're doing on every Friday morning are—you're are, still doing some of the old ones, the right. spiritual autobiographies and all the stuff on on uh, archetypal psychology and various mm-hmm. spirituality traditions and social change and all the rest. Uh, uh, um Before this moment, I probably listened to—I don't know—hundred,
2: yeah, you know, like a uh, hundred out of I've probably done uh about. Hundred and fifty at this point of the two hundred and fifty or so that we've done. Yeah, um, you have something to read to us at the start.
1: Yeah, um, you you said this 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 particular format is um, you like the person who you're hosting to to share some things at first and in this funny way in which one's consciousness works, um, what came into my mind was this um, amazing thing that I've loved all my life from Eudora Welty. Um, I, I was from the South, grew up in the mountains of Virginia and Roanoke, Virginia, and spent 15 years in North Carolina. And in some ways, my soul will always be Southern, even though my accent got teased out of me a long time ago. Um, but this is a, from a book that was published in the early 1970s um, uh, that a dear friend of mine from Mississippi gave me. Uh, that was actually Eudora Welty's photographs from the Great Depression that she had never um, shared. Um, and the name of the book is One Time, One Place. I'm going to see if I can hold this up, if you can see. This is a, a photocopy of a little thing I typed up for myself mm. that I put on my bulletin board in my journalism years. Uh, and I think it has a lot of relevance for this moment. Um, so here's here's how it goes. The thing to wait on, to reach there in time for, is the moment in which people reveal themselves. You have to be ready in yourself. You have to know the moment when you see it. We come to terms as well as we can with our lifelong exposure to the world, and we use whatever devices we may need to survive. But eventually, of course, our knowledge depends upon the living relationship between what we see going on and ourselves. If exposure is essential, still more so is the reflection. Insight doesn't happen often on the click of the moment, like a lucky snapshot, but comes in its own time and more slowly and from nowhere but within. The sharpest recognition is surely that which is charged with sympathy as well as with shock. It is a form of human vision. And that is, of course, a gift. We struggle through any pain or darkness and nothing but the hope that we may receive it and through any term of work in the prayer to keep it. In my own case, a fuller awareness of what I needed to find out about people in their lives had to be sought for through another way, through writing stories. But away off one day up in Tishomingo County, I knew this anyway, that my wish, indeed my continuing passion, would be not to point the finger in judgment, but to part a curtain, that invisible shadow that falls between people, the veil of indifference to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. So, again, that's some excerpts that I pulled from Eudora Welty from One Time, One Place. And, you know, I think it came to me because. I think that in this profound way, day in and day out right now, we're all trying to come to terms with what we're seeing and experiencing and with all of us. Um, You know, I listened this morning to New York Times interviews earlier this week with people who are unemployed, and this one woman told the story of not getting her unemployment and having to sell first her car and then her wedding ring and just... Wrapping our hearts around the fact that more than 20 million people are right now out of work um, and uh, More than a million families have lost a a loved one and and when I think about this moment um, You know what I'm hoping for is that we can struggle through this pain and darkness um, and 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 to to understand who we are to each other and what we owe to each other. And, you know, that's profoundly about race and it's profoundly about the unconscionable inequality that is, is, you know, newly exposed that we've allowed in this country. Um, And it's about the future that we're going to have in the the planet affected by climate change. And um, we see a lot of people now uh, asserting their rights with, you know, not having to, not wanting to wear a mask and, you know, but but in the really tragic and unnecessary polarization around that, we're not thinking enough about the responsibilities that we have to each other, um, not to mention the accountability. And and so I'm, I'm holding a deep hope that this can in fact be a turning in our collective history, the beginning of something really new. Um, I I also remembered uh, sitting at my desk in 1980 at the uh, newspaper in Greensboro, North Carolina, the the daily newspaper where I had gone to get training as a journalist and it was the day after the election when Reagan had had won and the Republicans were sweeping in. And I remember sitting there with a terrible hangover trying to write stories and and wondering as the student of American history that I was and, and remain, whether this is what it felt like in 1980 to be a Republican in 1932. Um, and in fact, I didn't, I couldn't imagine that in fact, the 40 years of my life, uh, the, the way in which the conservative and neoliberal project has swept through and dominated my entire adult life. I really do feel at the moment that we have a chance to, to build something new and that that is a, a source of great hope. So um so, I but I carry the spirit of uh, Eudora Welty um into that moment, which we can talk about some more.
2: Oh, beautiful. Let's just go into silence for a moment, just because you've given us so much. I just love to let that sink in for just a moment. You know, Catherine, I'm just moved to say that um, I don't want to embarrass you, perhaps I will, but. Um you really are one of the wisest um friends partners colleagues that I know and I um and I I turn to you often just for wisdom about um how to do our work things like that and um so I guess the question That I would ask you, and of course, your work as a consultant, as we said at the start, to foundations, to high net worth individuals, to nonprofits, and so forth, Uh, your work with the the Global Business Network, uh, your work with Stuart Brand at the Long Now Foundation, uh, your work in journalism before that, Something, uh, something seems to have prepared you for this moment. I guess that's the way I would put it. Um, And uh, I know, I've said this before, that I feel I was born for this moment. Um, Just, you know, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about the potential for something like this for for the last 35, 40 years. So I feel very at home in this moment because I felt I could see it coming. And as you know, we've been doing this resilience project and the Omega uh, Resilience Funders Network for the last three years or so. So the the core idea that there that COVID is no one-off phenomenon and the relationship between COVID and the global collapse is not a one-off phenomenon. And then George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter going global is not a one-off phenomenon. And so all these uh, events which keep occurring, at least in my understanding, and I believe it's one that you share, uh, represent the interaction of a couple of dozen global um, stress vectors that interact in completely unpredictable ways and the result is that the future shocks keep coming harder and faster and so um, and each one seems to overwhelm us i mean COVID alone and then the collapse uh, you mentioned you know 20 million unemployed and you know 250 million uh, facing acute hunger around the world which is a doubling of acute hunger and, um, and that says nothing for, you know, the, the, the billions of people whose lives around the world have been affected and, and far more profoundly, uh, acutely than most of us in the United States. So here we are in this moment where the world really does seem to have changed in a way that's different from prior changes. Even going back to the Great Depression, this seems larger globally so how are you how are you thinking about this moment what what ways of reflecting are serving you as you try to do sense making about where we are
1: um so I, I, I guess it starts. I have a journalistic sensibility. I mean, I became a journalist because I was always asking questions, um, and it, you know, what you're when you're a journalist, you're paid to learn every day, and um, and I think that I hold um, I hold a sense right now of this as a profound moment of learning. That um, I think that's the only way we can be in it, and and for that, I think it requires three things at the same time. It requires trying to um, remember what we know and what's most important to us. Um, In the midst of one of the things that helps the most with uncertainty is is clarity and and getting clear about what you believe and what your values are and what you want to fight for is is a, you know, so remembering what we know. Uh, and what's most important to us. Um, I think we have to sometimes rediscover things that we've forgotten. Um, And I think there's a lot about the deep forces of change and what creates transformation and moments of change to learn. Um, And I've got a couple things we can share about that. And then I think there's listening for what we need to learn. Um, And I think in one way or another, those are the three things I'm trying to do every day, uh, and um, the the metaphor that's most helpful to me um, is uh, you know there's a lot of metaphors now, and, um, and and I do think thinking of this as crisis and recovery is not a helpful way to think about it. Um, my my favorite way of understanding um, the COVID moment is a this. this completely wild writer that I discovered in the midst of this named Vinkatesh Rao, who says, um, COVID is now the setting. Um, it's, it's the setting for all the things, the emerging issues and crises that are playing out that we're in the midst of, as you said, all these kind of interconnected and cascading crises, crises. And, um, and, and it, and so the notion of that we're, you know, are we at a, a portal? Are we at a crucible? You know, like there's a lot of brilliant writers have written stuff. My favorite one, which I'll, which I'll share with you right in front of me is, um, actually, I think many people have said is, the, is, the, uh, but, but my favorite expression of it is from Richard Rohr, the, the Franciscan priest who, who I, I read his reflections every day. I know many people do. Um, he says, lemon um, so the notion of liminal space, limen, l-i-m-e-n, is the Latin word for threshold, um, leaving one thing about to enter another, betwixt and between. You know, you're waiting in the in the threshold, and I I feel just emotionally that that's where we are. And um, he points out that you know in religious traditions, um, there you know in many different traditions there are various kinds of rites of passage um, that. Um, you couldn't leave a liminal space or be freed from it until you learned what it had to teach. Um, that we're um, that that you're that in order to find to, to to find something and for that to be transformative, it's often a combination of intense both individual and collective experience and space. Which he says we're all now in a global initiation right, and we know have no idea how long it will last. And all of us, I believe are reckoning with our purpose and finding our way through it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that that I am holding for myself is what is it that I need to learn now? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is it that we need to learn? And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the, the habitual things I've always done in my life in a moment like this are not, are not the, not going to help me through it, that I have to find a way. I have to, have to rethink, re-feel, re-practice. Um, and, and I think that's going to be true for us as a society as well.
2: So remembering what we know. No. Uh, yes, remembering what we know, uh, rediscovering what we have forgotten, and listening for what we need to learn. Right. And then I, I also read Richard Rohr every morning. Did you read him this morning yet or not?
1: I did, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you notice this wonderful derivation of the word profound? Yes. That a profound, I didn't know this, means uh, in front of the temple.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And how we all feel often that we live in a secular world, but that in fact um, rightly understood. Uh, our lives can be lived in front of the temple the beautiful thing about richard rohr for me is that although he has a, a christ-centric view it is so ecumenical and so transformative he has this wonderful i think it's a book but it's certainly one of his essays called christ is another word for everything and i love that framing it's another word it's not the only word and he doesn't understand the Christ as the historical Jesus, although the historical Jesus is an expression of the Christ. Uh, but um, uh, but he is so ecumenical, and he has, you know, uh, Jewish uh, colleagues and uh, uh, Buddhist and Islamic colleagues, and so it's so ecumenical and so refreshing to have an experience of spiritual life that is so inclusive and yet so profoundly uh, engaged with values that we care about. So it's, it's really a touchstone for me. Somebody says, how to get a link to Richard Rohr's reflections. Yeah, if you just Google Richard Rohr, uh, his center is called the Center for Action and Contemplation. <laughs>
1: Contemplation, yeah, it's in, it's in Albuquerque, and he t- is, it just has a little daily email, but there's a lot of resources there. And yeah. The notion of body, action, the way that he um, his profound insight of contemplation without action or action without contemplation is right. we need both. Um, you know, so yeah,
2: it's, it's, um, he um, Richard Rohr uh, also mm-hmm. another mutual of interest of ours uh, wrote a beautiful book on uh, the Enneagram, which is an archetypal system of knowing yeah. that both of us have studied. Uh, so, but,
1: but I do. I, you know, yeah, I, I do think, Michael, this notion of uh, it's very hard. Uh, it's everybody wants to know what we can do. You know, myself right. included. And I I actually think um, there's something. You know, when we saw with the with the uprising around George Floyd's um, death, and the, there is the potential for some very new things. And um, and and I think if we rush too much. To the solution um, you know through through these things that um, uh, it's we have to keep we have to have a sense of urgency and we have to have a sense of persistence because it 's going to take a long time but but if we could fix the problems that face us with easy easy things, we would have done it a long time ago. I think we're being invited to reconsider many things um, and uh, and that I think that's why the liminal, the notion of liminal space really uh, appeals to me.
2: Um, mm. Now that everybody's on, I just want to encourage everybody to use the chat function. It's such a great place and you can talk with each other and people have posted the Richard Rohr link and, and so forth. So, uh, and yes, please do send everything to all panelists and attendees so that everybody can see it. When you spoke, Catherine of This being a global initiation, I completely agree with that. And uh, my colleague, Francis Weller, who's written an extraordinary book on grief and co-leads the Cancer Help Program with me often. And um, in the Cancer Help Program, he often speaks of a cancer diagnosis. He calls it, quote, a rough initiation, a rough initiation. Mm -hmm. So we're all going through a rough initiation. We wow. didn't want to go through this initiation, and yet here it is. And, you know, that beautiful line about um, COVID being the context for everything, you know, I could make the argument that the global economic crash is now the context for everything. I mean, in other words, we can see in the United States, uh, I mean, if, you know, what what is the what is the deeper tragedy for most people around the world? Is it COVID or is it the global economic crash? I guess an initiation. And so to me, uh, COVID is what triggered it. And it was the first poster child for what you can call the global challenge or the global problematique or the human dilemma or whatever you want to call the interaction of several dozen global stress vectors. Uh, but it seems to me that the true transformative rough initiation is that people don't have a way of making a living. They don't have a way of, uh, feeding their families. And, um, And I think that even more than COVID. And then on top of that, of course, the Black Lives Matter and its resonance around the world in very different contexts where systemic racism means different things in different communities, but everybody can relate to it. So these events keep coming. So not only is COVID context, but then the global depression as context, and then Black Lives Matter is a global expression of outrage at racism and injustice. And who knows how many more there will be between now and November 5th.
1: Yeah, we're just halfway through the year, apparently. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, I I've majored in history in college, and I read a lot of history and read, I've read a lot of American history. And one of the things that this moment um, makes me feel is that this is what history feels like right yep, you know you go right. back and it seems like there are these clear things and you know i mean when you 're living through it um it 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 's not like you know somebody carries a sign around and says, pay attention to this um this is what 's happening we won't you know we won 't understand for a long time some of what 's happening but it's uh one of the things that i 've been thinking about this week is that so so when um when this all started, uh, as you know, Michael, some of the people that I used to work with at Global Business Network, those wonderful, wonderful people who think about the future and learn, know how to do scenarios, gap had a, there is a kind of diaspora of those people, and we gathered and began thinking about what did this all mean in, in late March. And, and some of the people uh, you know, said this is about hyper uncertainty, that they'd never seen anything like this because there were so many dimensions of uncertainty. Um, and, um, you know, the, there's the disease itself, there's the healthcare response to disease, there's the economics, there's the politics, there's the social cohesion. And this week I've been thinking there's actually an, another one, which is the psychological effect of it. Um, you know, we're actually, you know, when you're talking about the, the, the economics, we're living through a, a, a trauma and those, somebody like me that lives in immense privilege and, and can try to, myself safe and, and has the resources to do that. Lots of people, you know, millions and millions of people don't have that. But even even for those of us living this way, this is a, this is a um, very profound and difficult time. And, and um, I, I heard a, 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 a somebody say uh, this week that he, he had a um, some maybe one and a half year old that he's having to teach to stay away from people as the child just is getting of the age to be with people and um, even other children. Right. And so, you know, the effects of this it is hard to say three months in, but I really do think that we're, we're at the beginning of something and it is. There will be many unexpected things that come together, which is always true of major moments in history, and um, and you know. So what I what I know for myself is that I I've, I've been trying to look ahead and help other people look ahead in smart ways all of my professional life, um, and. Uh, now history, the future is just racing in. You know, I can't keep up with it every day. And I actually think my own spiritual practice, the thing I know I have to deepen is how to live in the present. Um, You know, because I think this is going to go on for, this is our reality. This is not a crisis that's going to be over. COVID will be over. There will be a time when we will have less danger from COVID. Um, it may not be that simple moment that everybody imagines. It may go on much longer than than we hope. But the things that the, that in a very complex way are involved in this moment—the economics and the politics and the and the thing the 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 things that it's made visible and the psychological effects—I think we're we're we are in we're in that liminal space, moving to a new time that we can't see.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Catherine Fulton and host Michael Lerner.
2: You know, you said uh, there's this rush to ask what we can do. And uh, you said that instead of that sort of, I don't know what your phrase was, but kind of being with it? Is, is that what you meant by the alternative? Well, I think, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, I think um, <coughs> I think there are, um, um, you know, just as the George Floyd moment taught us and just as shutting down, the whole society shutting down in a few weeks, things that used to seem impossible are turn out to be possible. <laughs> um, and you can start thinking about more profound changes um but but i actually think um we've all been living inside broken systems for so long we're we we know how to be good mechanics um and and um as a friend of mine says actually we're dealing with a crime scene and you don't bring a mechanic to clean up a crime scene um, and th- there's a um so i just think i think that um to get anything done in this world takes a long time. Mm. Uh, you know, to just even the smallest thing takes a long time to, to mm. do well. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've been holding is if it's a moment in which transformation is actually possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, what, what we don't know how to do, nobody knows how to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and, um, you know, a a friend of mine, you know, another metaphor that I love is that we all need to be hospice workers for the world that's dying and midwives for the world that's being born. Hmm. And, um, and, and I think that um, while, while there's lots of things to do and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do some of the things we know how to do um, not least uh, you know, being on the front lines, helping to feed people and keep them housed and, the things that are really needed now um, but but I think there is um, uh, the path for the, the things that are going to be possible in this moment and the openings that could get created by additional crises that get layered on as your Omega and resilience work tells us um, it's a uh, I just think there's a, there's a need to to stay light on our feet um,
2: mm-hmm. to, I'm always struck, uh, as somebody who has studied psychology and politics, you know, for a very long time since I taught, taught that at Yale, um, about how different our personality structures are, you know, however, you, you whether you use Enneagram or the Diagnostic Psychiatric Manual or whatever, many of these systems say, you know, look, there are nine or ten different personality structures, and... You can group them. Uh, some of us um, respond from the gut, you know, some of us respond from the heart, and some of us respond from the mind. So there's thinking, there's feeling or sensing, there's, um, uh, uh, or the Jungian typology thinking, feeling, sensing, intuiting, uh, either extrovert or introvert. But the point is the reason I bring this up is that. We've spoken about how we're all going through this transformative moment, at a rough initiation, but our responses are so different. Mm-hmm. That's that's important to me. And okay. so any effort to generalize about how we respond, some people want to do, some people want to feel, some people want to think, some people want to observe, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. and that incredible richness and variety, and then that takes place in the context of whatever economic, social, cultural condition you find yourself in. And in the postmodern world that we live in, there are infinite possibilities.
1: Um, and we need all of those things, right? We need them
2: all, but it, yeah. what, makes, what becomes more difficult in that world is sense-making in a way that makes sense to all the different places. And so there are these competitions of memes about what's going on, and a lot of it is is driven by whoever is uh the loudest voice and sometimes the most extreme voice on any end of the polarization yeah
1: well and of course some of the sense making is gonna come from doing and learning from it right mm-hmm. so it it's um it, you know again these things are um uh i am a um I'm a big both and person
2: <laughs> yeah 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 it, um and, Well, we could spend our whole time on this um, extraordinarily rich question of what we are going through. Uh, But I also deeply want to uh, spend some time with you on um, your journey, on your journey. So... um, I always like to start with a a really basic question. You said you were born in the South. Tell us a little bit about where you come from.
1: Um, A beautiful valley in the Shenandoah, uh, Mm -hmm. the Roanoke Valley. Um, It's about maybe only 30, 40 miles from where the Civil War ended. Um, And... Mm -hmm increasingly i realized i was born in 1955 the civil the the hundredth anniversary i remember the hundredth anniversary of the end of the civil war and i increasingly realized that i you know i basically grew up in the 19th century
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) that that part of the world was still um in its in its race relations and its gender relations and its class relations and everything else it was it was really growing up in the 19th century. And, and I think that in many ways, my own life story was just trying to free myself from that. Um, and um, the, the, uh, I, I used to, um, I was, when I was at your invitation, I was reflecting on something I always used to say about myself when I was um, in my twenties, that I was too much of a journalist to be uh, an activist and too much of an activist to be an academic too much of an activist to be a journalist. Too much of an academic to be a journalist. Um, and I've always moved in and around these these worlds of really trying to expand my consciousness. Um, but but my I would say my early life was profoundly changed by um, by uh, three things really probably. Um, I was uh, very ill, got very sick, and um, and almost died and spent uh, two months in a hospital uh, uh, before I started college. Um, and uh, my life was saved. And um, But I, at a very young age, had to deal with um, the kinds of, the fragility of life in the ways that I think a lot of people when they're young don't. Mm-hmm. Most people when they're young don't. And that had a, profound effect on me uh, in, in many ways. Um, and then
2: I, I Before had, you go on from that, before you go on from that, yeah. uh, when you were very sick, uh, was there a moment or something that you learned from that experience that changed you?
1: Um. <laughs> There were several things. Uh, I mean, I think the fundamental thing of just the you know you feel invincible when you're young. You know, just the fragility, the fundamental reality, the fragility of life, the the so much darkness in life, and the and then the people who are full of light, the the, the simple acts of kindness that um, transform an experience like that. But what happened to me from it was that it, because um, they didn't know if it would come back and they, they didn't know, you know, I just lived for a very long time thinking that I might not live. Um, and, and so I kept asking myself if I w- knew I was going to die, what would I do this year? You know, that was a co- question I always asked myself at New Year's every year. And, um, and that was, that's a pretty good way to live, except that it, means, many years later, I realized it means that you don't do anything that's about deferring, um, (laughs) you know, the thing that you most want to do in front of you. So I never went to, you know, graduate school was, my graduate school was the world. It was journalism. I never went to graduate school or some of the things that I might have done had I had a different time frame for my life. Um, But I think the fundamental deep um, sense of the Um, the gift that life is and that it is never to be taken for granted. And there's nothing, I mean, knowing that intellectually and knowing it Mm -hmm. from your own experience are two very different things.
2: What are the, are there any stories from your early life or life that you feel represent or define you in any way?
1: yeah you you asked me, you know I was thinking about stories because of Eudora welty and and you asked me the other day about we, we were thinking about about stories and um and there were a couple that came to me that are that I think are worth sharing um, because of how they speak to this moment for for me um, and uh the the first one um so I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom a federal courtroom in greensboro north carolina in 1988 so it's um in north carolina it was the you know jesse helms was the you know the dominant senator and reagan was uh, reagan had been president for eight years and the religious right had been um you know in, in in had really we had the moral majority and that was the the kind of cultural context that, that we were working in and Um, My whole my life for the first 10 years out of college was very much inside uh, a a progressive mindset um, where I had helped to start an alternative community foundation in New York City. Um, And I remember sitting in a a library in, in, in Harlem reading Frederick Douglass's work looking for the name. We, we named our foundation North Star, which was his newspaper. And so I was reading his stuff. And the, the thing about you know, power never conceded anything without a demand, never has and never will. And I I, I, I believed that then, and I believe it still. Um, but I had become a journalist and had helped to start this progressive alternative paper called The Independent in North Carolina. And, and so I've been living inside this world and I found myself standing in this federal courtroom in 1988 in a moment that for me, uh, I realized in retrospect, crystallized what a lot of what I had learned in those 10 years. A friend of mine named Woody Tilly was being sworn in that day to be a federal district court judge. And he's the only way to do that at that moment. It means that Jesse Helms had nominated him and Ronald Reagan had appointed him, which means he was a Republican. And uh, and um, anybody who's ever been to one of these ceremonies, they're very moving, you know, just like uh, swearing swearing in of, uh, you know, people to citizenship. And at that moment, I was in totally pretty much certainly publicly in the closet lesbian, I I was involved. My partner then uh, was and is a ordained Presbyterian minister. She could be tried by the church at that moment in the 80s. I was uh, the only woman leading a a newspaper in in North Carolina as editor. Uh, and, And my dearest, closest friends knew that I was lesbian, but otherwise I was completely and utterly in the closet. And I was visibly a um, leading this alternative progressive paper. Um, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what Woody did, but he, I mean, there were all of these really rabid right-wing Republicans sitting in the room, as well as people that knew him. Um, and his wife was one of my best friends. And he call, He he told. He told two American stories that day about why he believed in America, and one of them was mine.
2: One you know, of them was was mine. Oh.
1: And he did not. He did not. You know, out me obviously, but he. It was very clear who I was and what he was doing. And it was, a, um, it was a moment when, for me, a lot of things crystallized about, I mean, he was, he was generous, he was courageous, and he used his power in that moment to say what he believed, which was different than what a lot of the people in the room believed. And it reminded me that I think it's really important um, that we and, uh, that it that we be quick to understand and slow to judge, that generosity can be generative, and that um, morality and character are not limited to progressive ideology. Um, and it's important to not dismiss people um, from a moral high ground that you've never met, um, and that stereotypes rob people of their humanity. Um, that people can and do grow learn and change and i think that at this moment we need people of many different types to come together in in new ways and um and and we're you know to be allies to be in coalitions to uh and and we're seeing early evidence of that being possible but i think it requires Qualities of the spirit um, that um, that in our kind of polarized time are really hard to come by, and uh, you know some of the most uh, righteous and self righteous and bigoted people I knew in North Carolina were progressives. Um, and and um, and this is a very hard thing to say and to hold, um, but I I actually. Um, you know, there was, when I think about that moment, so that was a moment, but it was the moment that crystallized what this profound, long experience had been, even as I hold, you know, deep, deep um, desire for justice and change. Um, it, it's a, um, I, I think that how we go about it um, in, in the time to come is going to be, is going to hold the clue about whether we're successful.
2: Uh, Catherine, what you say, said resonates so deeply for me, uh, as I think you know. I I could not agree more profoundly. Um, I could talk about all the reasons why, but I just want to let you speak for us both there. Uh, that is um, so deeply my own perspective and and. It is difficult to say that in a polarized world. And so I'm just grateful that you have said it and spoken that truth, at least for me, it's such a deep truth. You had a second story that you have been reflecting
1: on. I did, I did. I wanna wanna share one more thing about that one, just because it it is, um, in terms of the meaning for this moment, a lot of people right now are hoping this is a new, a new deal moment.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. We can in fact do some profound things that that, like what we're done in the new deal. And I, and I happened to read an article by a historian about the new deal. um, And, uh, and, and she pointed out, and I think it's not an accident that it's a she uh, that in, in repeating the successes of the new deal, her name is Elizabeth Owen. She's a Harvard historian. She said it, um, the success of the New Deal was built on more than all the agencies it spawned or the specific programs it established. It rested on the spirit of those who brought it into being. Uh, the New Dealers learned to embrace experimentation, accept failure. They turned aside ferocious opposition. They organized supporters, learned not just to lead but to listen. And perhaps above all, they pushed for unity and cultivated empathy. Um, and so, you know, I, I just think that's we've got to build big coalitions and they're going to be people who've been hurt from the disease and from the economics joining with people who've been hurt for decades and centuries there's nothing new about the a lot of the hurt um but if it's going to have to happen in a new way and so some of that is then my, my my second and last story michael was um so a few years later, if you put yourself in um, uh, in a in a hotel uh, conference room in Tucson, Arizona, in 1991, um, and I was attending a workshop that was called the Change Shop. Um, it's about about how groups can work together more effectively. I'm I've I um I've always been fascinated by. Um, groups and organizations and teams. I played basketball for years in, in, in high school and college, and uh, always fascinated by how people can can work together in ways that rise up to be more than the sum of their parts. Uh, and so I was in this workshop for a week based on the the work of a woman, a famous therapist named Virginia Satir, who was a uh, um, helped to invent pioneer the field of family therapy. Because of course, the way we behave in groups is generally, usually influenced by the first group we were in, which is our family. And there were about 50 people there for this week doing this workshop, and some of them were software engineers, and I barely knew what a software engineer was at that point. They were working for this company that I barely had heard of called Microsoft, which had only recently gone public. And um, and one of the teachers was a guy named Jerry Weinberg, um, who was one of the countries in the world's original computer scientists. He work worked on the Mercury space program in the late 50s and early 60s and gotten totally fascinated by the human side of how you did complicated projects. Um, and, and I'm a, you know, regional progressive journalist, you know, like I'm there to try to figure out how to, you know, make social change. And um, so at the end of this, and there were all these people from business and it's like, who are all these people? And I went up to Jerry at the end of this workshop and I said, Jerry, this was such a great workshop. I had such a wonderful time. It's really too bad there are not more people here trying to change the world. And he looked at me with this funny expression on his face as he said, Catherine, excuse me? That's exactly what they're here
0: trying to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the notion that people who were making new technology were social change agents. Uh, I mean, it seems I I can tell the story on myself now because it, all it says is about my own blind spots and ignorance. And, um, that admonishment actually planted a seed that then changed my life ever since really, because it got me to pay attention much earlier than most people in journalism did to what was about to happen. Um, and my, uh, my dear friend, Stuart Brand has a quote that I love. Um, he says, uh, when a new technology rolls in, you can either be part of the steamroller or part of the road. And um, and I set out to try to, you know, through the '90s, try to make sure that journalism wasn't part of the road. Uh, and most of the things that that I tried to do were uh, failed. Um, although I think you know we did we did help a lot of people understand faster than than they might have. Um, but but what that story is about for me now I, I, in terms of this moment, I think it's part of the learning and the holding the moment. What can we actually influence now? Um, I see a lot of very fuzzy, you know, visionary statements that I think are, um, you know, have not the slightest hope of being executed. And I see other imaginative visionary statements that are, you know, that are that, are that, that seed of the impossible thing that we've got to imagine, or we can't have a chance of bringing it about and how we tell the difference between the things that are newly possible that we need to dream of and the, the things that, um, that we really can't influence very much. And, uh, and, and if we, um, if we try to, we're going to waste a lot of energy. Uh, how we make that distinction. Um, and, and, and partly that's like, uh, on the progressive side, we think social movements are the key to everything. and It's the frame that, 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 that we use. And I think that that's right. There's m- many profound changes can't happen without social movements. But social movements are not equal to systems change. Systems change of the type we need, say, for cli- on climate going to require many, many, many levers, um, including technology um, for, you know, in terms of solar power and microgrids and um, getting, you know, transforming to a carbon-free world. Um, and, and so I tell that story just because um, I think we're at this, in, in this moment where we're trying to figure out what we learn, you know, what we need to remember and what we've forgotten and what's new things we need to learn. We've got to, if we want transformation, we've we've got to be able to hold um, uh, these different forces um, and and strategies uh, and and combine them by working with people we're not used to working with uh, in in new ways. Uh, and so I guess that's those two stories together define what I what I believe. I mean I. have been trying to learn all my life and just then apply it. That's kind of been my and 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 um, I think we're you know that we're going to learn our way into how to do this. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the playbook that we used in the '60s or in the Great Depression. It's not going to be the playbook that the conservatives used um, to transform the country because we are now in a completely different context, and it's going to require new things.
2: Thank you for that, Catherine. Again, uh, I just resonate so deeply to that. Um, so many directions that we could take this, um, but one of them, I, I don't want to leave out. You mentioned your friend, Stuart Brand, and you were the co-chair of his Long Now Foundation. Um, tell people a little bit about who Stuart is and what he has meant in your life and how, uh, why you're devoting yourself to the Long Now Foundation.
1: Um, so uh, Stuart, as many of you know, was the um, coniclastic founder of the Whole Earth Catalog um, and won the National Book Award in 1971. And um, he was uh, I, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, uh invited me to write a profile of stewart in 1994 for the los angeles times magazine uh, which i almost didn't do um and, uh, and and but i did and i was living in north carolina and, and i came out to california and i spent a week uh immersed in stewart's world he was one of the founders of global business network um, Global Business Network, 1988. They were good futurists, um, and um, uh, he. Uh, it is almost impossible to describe Stewart. He he brings networks of people together. Um, he's constantly uh, um, going uh, upstream against um, against. He's famous as an environmentalist, but he's been a a strong advocate of nuclear power as a as a um, a solution to climate change for instance um, in in the in the mid 1990s stuart is um, you know he he was he, he wore a little button called why haven't we seen a picture of the whole earth yet in 19 you know like 65 67 um, because NASA hadn't released those photographs and he had this Notion that that symbol that that photograph would be transformative of our understanding of ourselves and he was right And in the mid 1990s, he and his friend Danny Hillis and had this idea that um, To it was Danny's idea and Stewart started a foundation to, to, to begin to do it to build a clock to last 10,000 years um, and uh, the idea was to build an iconic symbol time and responsibility that would be like the photograph of the whole earth uh and long now has been around now for you know 20 almost 25 years uh and the clock is almost done it's built in a mountain in texas inside a mountain in texas will actually be such a clock uh and um but the but the more interesting for me the more interesting question is how do you build how do we reimagine what institutions are how do you hold, how do you build an institution that might last um, and um, and that could actually help us think um, with much longer timeframes and a larger frame of reference in a, in a time in a time when things are speeding up so much. One of my favorite characterizations I, I actually read recently was that it, you know the, the the language of colonization is in use a lot now, but actually the our our descendants are colonized people. Um, they they have um, they have no say in the decisions that are going to profoundly affect their lives. Um, and how do you how do we hold a sense of of how do you how do we think of ourselves as good ancestors? What decisions would we be making now about our planet and our politics and our economics if we were actually holding seriously the responsibility for generations of people to come? Um, and so I love those people who are part of Long Now are some of the people I've learned the most from in my life and steward, steward among them. And um, I'm a person that um, my life has been shaped by relationship and invitation as much as anything else. And The invitation to think about how you would um, construct a, a global distributed institution that could survive um, and hold certain values and, and hold, the, hold the intention to keep learning um, is uh, is is the one we're long now thinks of it having uh, having survived its first quarter its first twenty five years, now we're trying to design the next twenty five years, uh, and um, uh and and in this moment as with many organizations having to completely reinvent itself.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Catherine Fulton and host Michael Lerner. Related in
2: some ways to that question of. Organizations that survive make a difference in this hyper uncertainty. Um, you and I have both um, worked both on the nonprofit side, but also uh, in philanthropy and organized philanthropy. And um, I wrote a book. Uh, I my story, as you know, is that having co-led the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program for the last. 34 years uh, two alumni left small foundations in my charge and one of them the jennifer altman foundation um, i used to help uh create the modern environmental health and justice movement started the health and environmental funders network and so on so and uh But early on in the Jennifer Altman Foundation, in order to deal with the new experience for me of the incredible toxicity of organized philanthropy, psychologically and spiritually, because I was now responsible for a small foundation, but I felt uh, its toxic moral effects on my life, I, I wrote, tried to write my way out of it, and I wrote a, a book called *A Gift Observed: Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization*, which you read, and I think was useful to you in your thinking in philanthropy, if that's a correct description. So you've gone on to a, a much more influential um, career in philanthropy, uh, or at least in, uh, at least connecting with. Um, a remarkable range of philanthropic organizations. Um, and you you and our colleague, Mark Valentine, wrote uh, a, a remarkable essay that people can find at uh, omega.ngo, which is the Resilience Funders Network website about philanthropy in this moment. Uh, as you said, when, when you wrote it, it was... In some ways, it gets outdated even as we speak, just because things are moving so fast. But uh, people involved in organized philanthropy and also just individual donors um, face this extraordinary question right now, which that they have the privilege of uh, allocating resources, right? And they're trying to figure out what to do, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. an almost impossible question, uh, you know. For me, I find you know Paul Elversaker, who was uh, uh, the head of the Ford Foundation for a short time and dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard, and and was somebody I knew early on. And he had uh, three, as you know, three metaphors for uh, philanthropy. He said there's charity, patronage, and systems change. And he said that system change is, quote, the passing gear for philanthropy. But, you know, I think that charity and patronage have been underappreciated by organized philanthropists in this way, (laughs) that if you, you know, obviously, climate change is the defining issue of our time. But if you look at how much money has been wasted on ineffective climate change work. And if that money had been put to work uh, feeding and educating uh, people in uh, the global South, you know, it could have had a profound difference. I mean, you know, you look at, uh, you know, that's quote charity. Uh, You look at patronage when you give somebody a scholarship, uh, not only does the scholarship change their education, but it also gives them a lifelong sense that they were awarded something. You know that changes their identity in profound ways. So I, I God knows, I don't know the answer to this question. The the, the small piece that I think we're trying to contribute is um, that if you don't take into account the systems nature of the global challenge, then whatever silo issue you're choosing to work on, your strategies will be very short-sighted. So I'd love to hear you reflect just uh, on uh, what you are saying to colleagues and what you're seeing among people who are doing deep thinking about where philanthropy should go now.
1: Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um I do have um I do have some clients and and you know I'm watching and helping you know with this question, um, and I'm you know reading a lot every day this um you know, in terms of metaphors, I actually think this is a kind of a crucible moment for philanthropy, um, you know where the the pressure is 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 is, is on it's a, it is a test um, and um, you know the first thing to be said is, um, the first thing I want to say is one of the things you said in that book that I always loved is it is the quote about um you know philanthropy is you didn't say it quite this way philanthropy is blessed or cursed to have discretionary resource at a you know pivotal moment in history and and that was true when you wrote it it's even more true now, so whatever one thinks about whether we should even have philanthropy, you know arguably the countries that have a whole lot less philanthropy and a lot better, a lot more government and social democracy are a lot healthier and, and, and people are in much better shape than in the United States where we have a great tradition of philanthropy and, and voluntary uh, work. Um, what everyone thinks about where that ought to go eventually and what 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 is the role of philanthropy in a democracy and there have been much more writing about that in, in recent years as we've gotten more and more billionaires using philanthropy, uh, what everyone thinks about that is nevertheless true that right now philanthropy has discretionary resource and there are a lot of extremely wealthy individuals uh, uh, who are, I think, many of them frozen about what to do and sitting on the sidelines. Um, and so it, 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 the, the second thing I would say is I really agree with you about um, patronage, charity, and, and philanthropy. When, when I came out of college and went to work at the North Star Fund, the, the rallying cry was change, not charity, right? You know, it's like, we're going to create change. We don't want to just put Band-Aids on things, and we want to change things and, and um, get to the root cause and, you know, systems and all of that. And I actually now hold a, a different view. Um, I, it's got to be change and charity, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't call it charity. It's, you know, the word that we all hear so much now, solidarity um, it, you know in I live in Sonoma um, I want to think really hard about how we might change this place structurally over time but in the meantime pe- people are hungry um, and uh, and so it, it, you've got to be able now to hold both in in this moment um, so I think that to, if one thinks of charity more more in a frame of solidarity and what one what is it that each of us can be called to do to stand with people? Um, and is it, that help, that's helpful to me. Uh, on patronage, um, I actually think if somebody gave me a billion dollars, I would use it entirely in patronage. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't try to do, because I think the pro- one of the problems with philanthropy is that, um, especially in the last 20 years and the years of strategic philanthropy, it's become all about the philanthropist. Like what's the philanthropist strategy and what's the philanthropist view on systems change. And, you know, and yes, you have to do some of that and you have to, you have to make a bunch of those decisions. But for me, it's about who are the people on the front lines. Um, Sometimes those are people in communities who should say themselves what to do, but sometimes they're also, you know, extraordinary leaders who have the ability to make decisions quickly and move, you know, like no strategy, no plan can be set in place. It isn't going to have to change pretty quickly. Um, and, and so what seems to me in studying change, what really matters is, um, is the resource being used in innovative ways at the front lines by the people who are in the best position to know what to do. Um, I, I don't always think that's grassroots communities. Um, I think sometimes it's, um, you know, scientists in labs right now who need, need resource quickly. Um, and there's been some extraordinary, uh, um, uh, you know, philanthropy done to get money into hands of people quickly. Uh, I think some, you know, it's a, there are lots of different types of problems and they need, um, they need different types of solutions. And I think what happens is people kind of grab onto a particular solution and then want to use it for all different types of problems. And, and so uh if somebody gave me a billion dollars what I would do with it is I would um try to uh uh put it in the hands of the most extraordinary leaders that I could find across a number of different things and let go of it because who am I to have a strategy at some level as a philanthropist um and um and so I think there is a a need for um humility deep humility um and um, and deep curiosity, and I think that right now it would be um, again how how can people not respond quickly? Now, I mean, you see, even the big foundations beginning to figure out how to respond quickly, but how utterly stupid to use all your resource right now um, because we are so at the beginning, and there are going to be there's going to be so many things that are needed. So. I think most people I see are trying to hold um, uh, increased urgency, increased um, standing with people on the front lines, with um, anticipating as best as they can, uh, you know, at moments of great, at moments when it's chance, when there's a chance for reform. The ideas that get used are usually the ones that are that are ready, and so people are trying to get ready for the possibility in this country of of, of a moment where we could make some change. Um, and I think you also have to hold in, in, you know somewhat longer time frames. So um, so it, it is a it, it, it you know it is not you know it right in a democracy that the power sits where it sits. And it sits there. <laughs> and to me, um, it, we, need, we need it used intelligently uh, and, um, and wisely. Uh, and you know, so it's gotta, be, it's gotta be some now and some later as far as I can tell.
2: Hmm. Uh, you know, some, some colleagues of yours asked me recently to do a conversation with them about the future of philanthropy and they they know philanthropy reasonably well and so at the beginning of the conversation they they said to me what did i think and i i turned the question to them and i said what do you think the greatest success of modern american philanthropy has been in the post-world world and the post-war period and the the person i was talking to thought about it and he said the anti-smoking campaign or you know something like that that he was kind of And I said, no, by far the greatest success has been the Reagan revolution. By far the greatest success was that a small group of conservative foundations, based on the Powell Memorandum, which outlined a strategy, you know, at that time, uh, you know, there was this deep sense among conservatives that they were losing the battle on every side and there was this extraordinary memorandum uh, called the Powell Memorandum, where um, uh, uh, where Powell uh, outlined a theory of how conservatives could take control again. It was Powell small,
1: before, he, before he became a Supreme Court Justice. Before
2: yeah. he became a Supreme Court Justice, exactly. And, um, and then the small group of foundations got together and executed, and they've been executing ever since. So the reason I tell that story, I mean, the first thing about it is that it's no surprise that philanthropy, uh, which I think uh, the sociologist, uh, I think it was Nisbet, called a buffer for capitalism. Uh, philanthropy has always favored the class from which it comes, including in social work, in, in every area, but including in work that should be distributed to to poor people even there it favors the wealthy uh but i want to talk about a structural sense of promise for philanthropy which is if you are one of the new billionaires who are benefiting particularly the infotech billionaires but you are not attached in a whole lot of ways to the old um conservative powell memorandum structure but you want a structure that um, doesn't destroy your well-being um, but that um, you realize that that american democracy is in crisis and you are perhaps smart enough to think in systems terms and you realize that in a systems approach to the global challenge that a moment of deconstruction and complete chaos like this actually creates huge opportunities for change we know that there are huge opportunities for change yep. Yep. so are there a group of people somewhere who are sitting thinking how do we create uh, a system that uh has social justice that has that reduces uh racial discrimination and disparities that speaks to the new america which is a meritocracy uh in in many respects though a deeply flawed one but the new uh the new billionaires are of many colors and of many backgrounds and uh and they aren't invested in the old uh quite supremacist view of american culture they don't need uh the way uh, Powell put together the Christian right, the libertarians, and the, you know, the old financial structures, they have a new set of interests. So one can well imagine, because power is not going to go away in the new setting. And clearly, one of the big winners, almost certainly in the new setting, is the Infotech um, Community—it's the Amazons, the Googles, and so on and so forth—and and they will not give up power lightly. They will not give up power lightly, but they want a better world. They—they they are not attached to the old toxic industries. They are not attached to white supremacy. They are not attached to the—you know—the the Powell doctrine. So, it seems to me that there is hope that they may see the possibility of a new majority in a lasting way. And if you look just at the polls right now, uh, we may yeah. see a change in governance. And so yeah. who are the people who are thinking about how to use that? well there are a
1: lot there are a lot actually and um i mean i would i would refer you to a statement just made in i think this week by the democracy fund which is a, a, a an entity um in washington uh, funded by pierre Amidyar uh, who is one of the uh yeah. and and what's interesting about it is um this democracy fund was started in twenty 20- I'm going to say maybe 2014, it's, and so it predates Trump. Um, and um, the statement that they just made—they started out in the classic way that you know we've done in, in in liberal, small liberal democracy, which is bipartisan. You know, for something like that, and they just put a statement out that they could no longer be bipartisan. Um, and wow. um, and it's a very powerful statement. Um, and I'm sure that um, I have no I have no direct Knowledge of that, I think that's I think it's from Joe Goldman, the guy who's the head of it. I have no direct knowledge of it, but I can't imagine that it would be going out without um, the family um, being behind it. Um, and so, I I think there's a, it's that's an example of the kind of rethinking, uh, you know that that I think we we have to we have to do, um, and. Um, so it's uh, Sterling
2: Sparon just wrote us a note. I would like to offer the new report just out called our common purpose, reinventing American democracy for the 21st great.
1: century.
2: Yeah. And, uh, um, and Wonderful.
1: we'll look at, we'll look at that Sterling. That's great.
2: But what this is for me, because I hadn't really thought about what I just said before, but it really does seem to me that uh for those of us who have at least one foot in um, organized philanthropy, that the que- that the way you framed it at the start, which was so powerful to me, is that we need coalitions that are bigger than just the progressive community. We really need that and it mm-hmm. seems to me that this moment uh, uh, creates the opportunity for those larger you know in a sense a new deal, in a sense a new deal. Yeah.
1: You know um, what you're, what you 're saying I want to just make a connection to something yeah. that i 've seen for a while, um, and uh, my friend Chris Degelmeyer has done some work on that i 've worked on with through at tides um, the, the you know the new the, the tech philanthropy people mo- mostly so many of those people, especially the ones that that are young don't have direct experience of social movements or, uh, you know, that depends on where they grew up or, you know, politically, they grew up in a very different time and their frame is much more what one could call social innovation, right? So it's about how you, you innovate new things, right? And um, it's design thinking, it's all of these things that have, you know, become uh, big in, 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 business and in um, in another context over the last 20 years then you have the long historical social justice movement um, and all the things we know about movements and and the the new movements are so sophisticated in the ways that they're building on the past and using the new tools and uh, you know there's a there's a lot to be said what but if you hold the part of the potential is the social innovation people who are starting to understand social justice and the social justice people who are starting to understand social innovation. So one of my favorite organizations is the, um, uh, run by um, uh, I, I Jin Pu, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. They have an innovation lab, right? And they use in that innovation lab, all the tools from the social innovation world, but their fundamental purpose is empowering um, uh, mostly women of color, um, that, uh, in, uh, that are in people's homes, providing childcare and, and elder care. And so I think that some of the, of the what's possible in this moment, now for, the, for the people on either extreme, for the social justice people who think anybody who ever had anything to do with business must be evil, or the people over here in business who think that all oh, those, those silly nonprofit you know, movement people, they don't really know anything about how the world works. For people who wanna insist on those kind of big stereotypes, there's no bridging to happen. There's no thing in the middle. But there's a large, and I would say in this moment, growing number of people who have a lot to learn from each other about new ways to work. And, and I would say that this, you know, I haven't read Sterling's new report, but, you know, I would say that this Democracy Fund statement on bipartisanship is an example of people moving from the frame over here away over here. Um, and, um, it's, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of that, a lot more of that. And I hope we do.
2: Mm. You know, Catherine, I truly hope that you will come back to the learning community because I feel like we've only, uh, touched the surface of what we could talk about in so many of these realms, but in the last, uh, five minutes or so of our conversation, um, let me ask you, uh, two questions. I'll start with this one. What have we not touched on or what have I not asked you about that you would like to say?
1: Uh, uh, Probably, uh, I feel like I've done nothing but talk, uh, Michael, for a long time here. I'm so relieved we're near, near the end. As you know, I was not looking forward to this. Because I, 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 being the center of attention like this is uh, not does not come naturally to me. I like being in your position, <laughs> um, but um, no, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot more to say, and I'm holding a lot in my heart, but nothing, nothing in particular. Mm-hmm.
2: You said you had another poem nearby. Would you like to? I, offer I that
1: did. Process? I did. I, I, um. I, I was I, I just can never forget this poem you 're the one who read it the first time that I heard it, and I want to leave it because i think I think it 's a good place to end because I think it is the the reality um, uh, you know our 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 dear friend angela o oh, who 's on the board of Commonwealth with us um, in the board meeting on on Wednesday of this week um, when we were doing our final checkout. Um, she kind of leaned in like this on Zoom and she said, You know people ask us, are we okay? And we all say, yeah, sure. I'm doing fine. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, and she said, we're not okay. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was like a really good, a nice gift. And it, and it reminded me of this poem that you first read, I believe at the fall gathering at Commonweal just after Trump was elected. Um, and uh, and it's a short poem, uh, and I'll share it. It's by a, um, uh, I believe, African woman named Warsan Shire. I believe she lives in this country now, um, but it's from Africa. Warsan Shire. What they did yesterday afternoon is the name of the poem. They set my aunt's house on fire. I cried the way women on TV do, folding at the middle like a five pound note. I called the boy who used to love me, tried to okay my voice. I said, hello. He said, Warsan, what's wrong? What's happened? I've been praying and these are what my prayers look like. Dear God, I come from two countries. One is thirsty. The other is on fire. Both need water. Later that night, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world, and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere,
2: everywhere, everywhere. Would you read it one more time?
1: They set my aunt's house on fire. I cried the way women on TV do folding at the middle like a five-pound note. I called the boy who used to love me, tried to okay my voice. I said, hello. He said, poor son, what's wrong? What's happened? I've been praying and these are what my prayers look like. Dear God, I come from two countries. One is thirsty, the other is on fire. Both need water. Later that night, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world, and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere,
2: everywhere, everywhere. Let's just be in silence with that for a moment. Where does it hurt? Everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Where does it hurt? Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Catherine Fulton, thank you for being with us in the learning community. And thanks to all of you who have joined us. Um, I just want to say that... uh, we run the learning community and the new school on a homeopathic budget. And so if you are able to contribute uh, what you might spend at Starbucks, or um, it makes a difference. Um, and we're just so grateful for this community that gathers every Friday morning. Uh, Kira has put up the contribution space. But uh, also just to say uh, that we have a whole bunch of lovely conversations coming up. Uh, On July 3, those of you who don't know Carl Safina's work, it's just completely extraordinary. He uh, has recently written Becoming Wild, but he is a naturalist of the highest order. Uh, Lisa Sims Booth uh, is an extraordinary woman who runs Smith Center for Healing and the Arts in Washington, D.C., which is a sister community to commonweal um, rachel naomi Remen comes back uh, uh lisa's on july 10th rachel naomi Remen comes back july 17th with marion weber who is an extraordinary friend and colleague and that one is called being old so there will be three of us talking about being old on july 24th tom yeomans uh, actually a colleague of rachel's uh, in the psychosynthesis tradition has a beautiful new book called holy fire the process of soul awakening that's on the 24th and then janie brown who runs kalanish in vancouver british columbia another sister community to our cancer work comes back on july 31st so um we have all these beautiful souls continuing to come together and and just to say that the learning community um Uh, You know, the new school, uh, uh, 17 years on, we've done over 250 conversations. What's different about the learning community is that we're building a continuing community of people who want to explore and learn together. And so it's a deep joy for me uh, to do this uh, with friends uh, like Catherine Fulton and Carl Safina and Lisa Sims Booth, Rachel Remen, Tom Yeomans, and Janie Brown. So we hope you'll think about checking in on Friday mornings to see who's on and whether you'd like to be with us.
1: Michael, Michael yeah. just quickly, um, some, uh, the, the name of the poem, because uh, a couple of people have asked about yeah. it, um, the poem is called And it's easy to Google what they did yesterday afternoon is the name of the poem, what they did yesterday afternoon. And it's written by Warsan, W-A-R-S-A-N, S-H-I-R-E, Warsan Shire, what they did yesterday afternoon. It's easy to find on the web.
2: And actually that poem came to me via Eric Carpola's. Uh, who found it somewhere and Eric has been a colleague and uh, with the new school work as well so so anyway bless you all Catherine Fulton I am so grateful I'm so glad that you were are relieved that this is over (laughs) (laughs) since it took you out of your comfort zone but I think we all benefited so much so thank
1: you thank you for the invitation
2: Michael yeah
1: yeah Bless all of you. Thank you.
2: I could see you you all.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Catherine Fulton and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.